In this episode, we're talking about how we can build practical resiliency habits for our careers. My name is Lou Blazer. You're listening to Second Breaks. This is episode number 117. Hello, hello, my friend. Thank you so much for joining me for another episode. Well, in fact, the first episode of 2020 is a happy new year. The first episode uh, for 2020 for Second Breaks, a podcast show where we talk about making smart career moves in a changing world and thriving in our chosen careers. This is actually a f- the first full-length episode since mid-October. <laughs> we had a we had a bit of an unplanned hiatus here at Second Breaks headquarters, and I talked about all that. I explained a bit of what happened back in December last month. That was episode 116. But we are back to regular programming now, and the weekly episodes will resume starting today. New episodes will continue to drop on Thursdays from here on. Now, when the break happened, we were in the middle of the side hustle series. We still are. I've got a couple of uh, very exciting and very informative episodes to round that up. But today's episode is a break from the series. As this is the first episode of 2020, I wanted to talk about a topic that's important for us to think about at this time of the year and plan for with respect to our careers. And that topic is resilience. We live in a world where nothing's a given anymore. Change comes fast and furious, delivered by exponential technologies like artificial intelligence, robotics, gene technology, and so on and so forth, as well as changing workplace practices and norms. All expectations are out the window. The name of the game is adjust and adopt. I remember a a mentor of mine used to always tell me, it's about changing the tires while the car is moving at 80 miles an hour or something like that. While all of these can make for exciting and adventurous times, it can also be stressful and anxiety-inducing. And one of the most important skills that we can strengthen or need to strengthen and cultivate is our resilience. Our ability to recover and bounce back from changes from adversity or setbacks. Now you might be thinking, why in the world is Lou talking about this at the start of the new year? Why is she being a downer? Well, to paraphrase my guest today, Dr. Nyla Bahari, it's important to build resilience habits when times are good and not wait until the train's off track. So while we are riding the wave of New Year enthusiasm and the go-getter spirit is sky high, let's think about what we all can do to instill good resilience habits while we're at it. My guest, Dr. Naila Bari, is a leadership and career development coach. She works with individuals and teams to help them unleash their professional greatness and do their best work. I asked her to join me on the show to talk about her research work on career resilience and her observations around the habits and practices of the people who remained stuck versus those who moved forward versus those who were transformed as a result of a major setback. I had been working at a business school for a very long time, and I had seen over the years that people were experiencing setbacks, and some of them were professional. A lot of them were professional. So I would have students graduate, go into the market, 
something would happen. You know, a job wouldn't work out for personal reasons or just performance reasons, or something would change in the company. And what was had been a necessity for the organization was no longer a necessity, and they were displaced. And I would notice that some of them would handle it really well, and they'd be feel positive, and they would come back to the school for resources or conversations, and they just seemed like, hey, I'm going to manage this. And I would have other students who'd be angry for years and a really long time. And it surprised me. And I kept saying, I wonder what it is. Is it, is it because of their nature? It's because of who they are as people? Is it mm. something they're doing? Is it the way they were laid off? Um, so that's what led me to the topic in the first place. And I did long form interviews with the people who I met with. So qualitative research. So I really got to go beneath the level of the news about the layoff into the feelings, the thinking, the decision making that came after the layoff. In this episode, Nyla and I dove into the practical habits that we can incorporate in our day-to-day activities to strengthen our resilience muscle. We talked about what's even more important than being optimistic or having a positive attitude. And we also talked about the importance of experimentation and the long-held beliefs and embedded messages that we've got to overcome first to truly embrace experimentation. So grab your notepad as you're going to gain tons of insights today. Or if you're like me and you listen to podcasts on the go, don't worry, head on over to the website secondbreaks.com for the show notes. But before I introduce Nyla to you and another reason to visit the website, I first want to invite you to subscribe to the Second Breaks newsletter. If you're thinking, I don't need a newsletter to remind me about a new podcast episode, let me assure you, this newsletter is not that. The Second Breaks newsletter is a curated resource for your next career, whether that's your second act, your third, or your fourth even. I comb through trade journals, newspapers, magazines, blogs, podcasts, TED Talks, etc. to find and present to you relevant, prescient, and practical information to help you make the right decisions and take the right set of actions for your career. A couple months ago, a friend of mine took a look at the pile of magazines on my coffee table, and he didn't even see the digital ones that I've got on my iPad. And with dismay, he said, who's got the time to read all these? Well, I do. (laughs) I make the time because this is my job. My job, whether it's through this podcast or through the newsletter, is to help you become better informed and better equipped to meet today's challenges, grab the opportunities, and achieve your career goals. So head on over to secondbreaks.com forward slash newsletter to give Second Breaks a try. Okie dokie. So with that, let's get on with the show. I read in an article where you were featured that you had, uh, for your doctoral dissertation, you did a study and you interviewed people who were affected by the 2008 recession. And then you followed them or you talked to them about how they landed a few years later. And I thought this was a very prescient and very relevant topic to get into because there's always talk about the next recession. (laughs) And regardless of when that next recession will happen. Uh, we are in a state of disruption nowadays, constant disruption, and lots of people are being dis- uh, displaced, will continue to get displaced as yep. new advancements in technologies become more and more mainstream. So I think this this topic of resilience is very important. So 
I thought we'll start then there. Can you talk a little bit about some of your observations? One of the things is that you talked about the three broad groups of people uh, based on your study that you observed. And yes, I came up with definitions for three different kinds of outcomes. Hmm. Um, so one of the groups, the luckily the smallest group was called, I called them the stuck. And these are people who I was talking to them, let's say three to four years post recession, right? So if most of them lost their jobs between 2008 and 2009, I was talking to them several years later. And the group that was characterized by being stuck, they had not found appropriate work. Hmm. So they were still either underemployed or unemployed, and they had not found a way forward that was productive and led them to uh, work that felt appropriate. So they were using language like stuck, that came from them, or trapped, or indecisive, unable to move forward. And that reflected how they were feeling, how they were thinking, and how they were acting. Uh, luckily, like I said, that was the smallest group. The next group was actually the largest group, I call them the settled because in fact, they had moved forward. Um, but so they found appropriate work. Uh, and I don't blame them for having done what they did, right? Well, because one of the things that's universal during layoff is people start feeling a lot of crisis around the practicalities of work, right? Yes. What am I going to do about my mortgage and my bills and my kids tuition? And how am I going to tell my kids and all that stuff that we would expect or that we've been through if we've been laid off? Um, and there were this largest group of people, they moved forward. And what makes them different than the final group of people who are the group that I became the most interested in is that they did not take the time to look inward or to look up. They just moved forward. They took one next step. And so many of them would experience a job. But when I spoke to them about what they had learned through the experience, there wasn't much they had learned or how they felt about job. They were carrying a lot of that residual pain from the layoff into the next job, they hadn't processed it. And so it might even be in several cases affecting their performance, their relationship with their managers, their trust in the organization. Mm -hmm. So they'd moved on, but I can't say that they had grown through the experience. The third group uh, I describe as having experienced some sort of professional transformation or renewal, because these were the group of people who really took the layoff experience and understood that it was an opportunity to look inward and look outward and to change the nature of the way they relate to work. Uh, and that's become kind of one of my, my the big underpinnings of all of my work since then is this idea that I believe we are in relationship with our work. It's not just that we do work or go to work, but that we are expressing who we are in the world through our work. And the people who experienced that transformation and renewal took time to make sense of that relationship and to create an ideal relationship so that whatever they ended up doing, um, they felt agency, they felt choice, they felt independence, they felt clarity mm. about the value they offered in the world. So their experience of work, even if the job they took looked similar to the job they'd lost, they were different and the relationship was different. So those are the three groups, stuck, settled, transformed. It's interesting as you were describing that I actually know someone who unfortunately fell in or fall in the, the first uh, group. And yeah. the way that he would talk about it is that it almost like he personalized, even though what happened in 2008 is not personal, right? It, it's, right? it's an industry thing. It happened across wide 
it across most many industries, particularly in the housing industry. He happened to work in the housing industry, yeah. but he, it almost like he took it yeah. personally, like you know, and he was never able to fully get back to his confident stride. Yeah, yeah, you know what I th- work in some regards is personal, and I think that's one of the realities. I mean, I found it really. Um, moving on a personal level to have, to have people talk about something that impacts them so profoundly. And I still find that, you know, I do a lot of coaching work. It is, I think there's a lie that we're told, like, it's just work. It's just a job and don't, don't let it drag you down. And I don't think that serves us because that's not how, that's not how I experience work. And most people I know, it's not how we experience work. And I say this, and I think I said it just a few moments ago. I really think of work as one of the ways we express our humanity in the world. And I express, I mean, I work, I mean, I 90,000 hours in an average adult's life, we are going to spend 90,000 hours at work. Um, that's more than we're going to do anything else except for sleep, right? So <laughs> don't tell me that I should discount or disregard or depersonalize something that impacts the largest amount of my conscious time in the world. Like, that's significant to me. So it doesn't surprise me that your friend took it personally. Yeah, I think what would distinguish him from some of the people I've worked with who I experienced having transformed or renewed through work is that they do something with that pain. They learn how to make sense of it, how to make meaning of it, mm. how to accept it. Um, and then they do the both the inner and the outer work of healing that relationship with work so that they can move forward in a way that makes them feel more whole. Um, but I would say it is personal. I mean, it's how I work in the world is very personal to me. It's a big reflection of who I am. A, a couple of the people who I follow uh, online were people who were affected by 2008. So, for example, I didn't know if you were familiar with Pat Flynn, who is the host of the podcast Smart Passive Income and the blog Smart Passive Income with Pat Flynn. And he, I, I mentioned him because he talks about this all the time. He was one of, he's, he's an architect or was an architect. And so he was one of the first people who were, uh, uh, laid off as a result of two, yeah, of the 2008 right. recession. He, he enjoyed being an architect, but for a year he couldn't find a job because there just wasn't any jobs in that space at that time. And so he had out of necessity, he had to look elsewhere. And so of course now, you know, he would never go back. He says it was a silver lining because he found his uh, a new calling or, a, you know, a, a new way of uh, expressing himself. Yeah. And I'd say, listen, you know, when I talk about the people who renewed their relationship with work or experienced that transformation, that healing, some of them departed from what had been their prior industry. But some of them were very committed. This is the work I do in the world. This is what I've been trained to do, what I love to do, where I add value. And I'm not going to give up on that entirely. Like I'm not, I don't need to change industries. I just need to be persistent and find the way maybe in an unconventional pathway, but find my way back. Right. Um, and I, I, cause I, I think there's, I mean, I'm subject to it too. I think, especially with like the explosion of podcasting and Instagram and all the stuff to think that, well, everybody's just going to like hang a shingle. And if it doesn't work out in your company, the solution is to become an entrepreneur right. or a social media presence or a podcaster. And, um, for some of us, sure. But for other people, you know, I, the thing I was doing, I love doing, it's the right place for me to express myself and the path might be crooked and it might be lengthy, but I'm committed. Um, so I, I don't, I, I did definitely interview and work with people who 
made massive changes. But I met a lot of people who said, you know what, it, it took me a really long time to find appropriate work for myself. And I made missteps along the way. I took jobs I shouldn't have taken. Or I was laid off a second time or a third time. Um, but I know that the thing I have chosen to do is the right thing for me right now. So... I was wondering whether the people that you observed that were part in the last group, the, the people who found renewal in the work, whether you thought that they were, uh, it was all mindset mm, uh, related mm. or were they exhibiting behaviors that were different from the other groups? Yeah. So I would argue that it's behavioral, but some of the behaviors are managing the mindset, right? So the relief to me was that I found that some of the people who experience renewal would describe themselves as negative people, having a pessimistic, you know, glasses, half empty attitude in life. That's how they saw themselves. But nonetheless, they took action. That's interesting. And I, yeah. Which I, I assumed that they were all the very positive, optimistic people. So did I. Rocking in, I was like, well, obviously it's going to be the cheerful people, like the people who are generally, you know, I don't know what the personality metric would be, but it would be something that like, I'm generally see things as, as positive yeah. and I, there's always a way out of a problem. And in fact, I found that there were people who were stuck, who had historically defined themselves as very positive and optimistic. And there were people who renewed who were like, generally, I'm kind of a naysayer, but I just put like one foot in front of the other and did things, tried things. And the good news about all of this is that it turns out those behaviors are available to everybody. And sometimes we need support and scaffolding, coaching, mm -hmm. career groups, networks. But the things that these people did are not uh, highly scientific. They're not, they're just activity. Um, and I can dive into that if that's helpful. So I would say I break them into two families of work. I'd say that the first three practices or habits or activities are inner work. So mm -hmm. we're looking a little more internally and gaining perspective, uh, looking to do some of that work independently, quietly, alone. And the other two activities are more extroverted. They're more what I call outer work. They involve you getting back out into the world, um, looking for information and um trying new things. So in that family of work that I call inner work, we're really trying, like I said, to gain a deeper perspective, um, to learn about ourselves and to really take stock of where we've been and where we are right now. Mm -hmm. And so those behaviors looked like three specific things. The first thing was that I found the people who were renewed were networking very differently. And okay, so networking is kind of an extroverted activity, but the purpose of networking was for deeper personal insight and learning. So most of us think of networking as transactional. If you do this for me, then I'll do you later, right? Like if you invite me to that conference I want to go to, I'll make sure that you get to meet my manager who you think is an interesting person for you. The people who were um, using networking in this context were doing it differently. And they were using networking as a source of data about themselves, their own performance, the times in which they've been the most uh, vibrant and productive and effective at work. Uh, and this does require that you are talking to people who know you, who you've worked with or gone to school with, or who are part of your activity level, whatever that is. But it, the whole purpose of that networking was different. It was to say, tell me what I don't see. Mm -hmm. Since I have this moment, this opportunity to rebuild, to do things differently, what do I need to know? What are my blind spots? Mm. What do you think in me? What do you think I do that's really wonderful and value added and worth me digging deeper into? 
Okay. Um, which was, again, very different, especially having been in a business school for so long where we think about networking as just meeting a lot of people and knowing a lot about a lot of companies and knowing a lot about a number of industries to say, like, actually, I'm the source of, of material. Like, I need to know what right. you see in me was really, but I was seeing over and over people were doing this. And sometimes they got there out of fatigue, right? They got there out of having networked in our traditional way for so many months, like you said, not getting outcomes. And then mm-hmm. saying to people, what am I not seeing? And that invitation creates a, amazing moments for insight. And I find that now I shortcut this with a lot of my clients. So if I, they say to me, as a lot of people say, I don't know what I want to be doing. I say, listen, you don't have to do this by yourself. Get out there and ask the people who work with you every day. When do you see me at my happiest? Right. When do you see me at my most useful? What do you come to me for? Right. Okay. So that's one thing, networking to learn. Uh, Second thing is to invest in yourself outside of work. Um, And as I often say, this seems really counterintuitive when you are underemployed, unemployed, have just had your heart broken by work, right? What you think you should be doing is getting back to work, finding another job. Just put your head down and do that. Most important thing. (laughs) Most important thing. And, and by the way, yeah, I just think it's like, feels so urgent. Right. And so the thing that I was surprised by was that the people who were thriving were making structured time to do other things. Um, and I know that at some point you had asked me early in one of our earlier conversations about scar tissue. Um, I call it professional scar tissue, which are those wounds that stay with us when work has treated us badly, right? So that might be the layoff, that might be the crappy boss, that might be just the, the job where we were in the wrong, doing the wrong thing, it didn't, was not aligned with who we really are, what we should be doing. And we walk away with that heartbreak. And I do experience that it leaves us with scar tissue. And I've had it myself. I'm, I'm, I'm I'm gathering by your response that you have too. Yeah. Uh, And it stops us from feeling trust in organizations and managers. And I think worst of all, it stops us from feeling trust in ourselves. Mm -hmm. We start feeling like maybe I am incompetent. Maybe I don't deserve to have that job. Maybe he was right to let go of me. Um, And so what I found was so interesting about the people who were experiencing that transformation, that healing, is that they were doing things they loved that had nothing to do with work. So Uh. they getting back to sports or arts or cooking for their families or traveling, doing things that just reminded them of themselves at their best. Right. They were doing things that reminded them they are joyful, they are creative, they are resourceful, they are good people to be around. I can fall back in love with something, right? I, there's something that makes me feel great again. So by the time they show up to interview, to network, to have those conversations, they're not a shell of a human. They're not you know, broken. They're just, I'm myself. I'm just trying to find the right work for myself. Right. And I think that that last one there that you said is so, is also a, a good advice for folks who may be in the process of interviewing or have been interviewing uh, today and haven't yeah. found a, a you know a new job yet, uh, and they are beginning to feel discouraged, yeah. down on themselves. And to your point, when when that's sort of how we feel, it probably shows up in the way that we talk yes. to the yes. people, right? And so there's there's maybe a, 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 an element of desperation even that seeps into our the way that we show up or the way I agree. that we talk. Yeah. And I, I actually had, you know, someone who I spent a lot of time with through this research process had been 
laid off in a very, I mean, the stories I heard about how people are treated during layoff would break your heart um, just badly. And he said, like, for the first six months, walked the streets of New York, thinking about work, worrying about work, obsessing yes. about work. And he said, I knew when I showed up to talk to people, I looked angry. And I, who wants to work with a guy like that? He said that. Who wants to hire me? I know I was coming across like a jerk. Yeah. And then he began a process of, for him, he did a lot of reading and a lot of writing. And he's like, it just softened me. It made me back to who I am. So when I showed up, I was interested in things. I was curious about other people. I had given myself a break and it showed in my conversations with them. And it's like, I just know that the person I was in that second six months was more interesting to talk to, was nicer to talk to. Um, I find that's true. Even if we're unhappy at work, like work has this incredible ability to obsess all of our time, to consume mm -hmm. all of our time. So when it's good, and I know I've been there, when work is great, I know that I can wake up thinking about work, go to bed thinking about work. And it's like, you know, 22 hours of my day are obsessed with work. When work is bad, I think that's also true. And the other thing that I find that investing in yourself outside of work does is right size the role that work should play in life, right? Because if I've got a commitment to cook dinner to my with my family four nights a week, that starts to put other pieces into my schedule. If I am committed to my book club, if I'm committed to my dog, then I cannot let my work creep into every waking moment of my day, which is better for us. As much as work is important, important to me, important to you, it can't be all we do. Mm -hmm. um, so yes, so investing in yourself outside of work. Um, the third part of the inner work that these people did was commit to a reflective practice. And I think this is the most pivotal, the most essential. Um, 100% of the people who met the criteria for experiencing transformation were doing this. And again, many of them would not have said, yes, I was a big meditator prior to layoff, or I wrote in my journal, or I went to a career counseling group prior. But once this had happened, and again, often out of desperation, they said something, if this, I'm not getting the results I want from those kinds of behaviors, I got to try something else. Um, and for many of them, it was writing in a journal. And often, you know, coaches, if you, when you're coaching people, when I'm coaching people, I know I direct people to pen and paper all the time. Mm -hmm. um, for some people, walking, running, that kind of movement that creates that meditative effect or actual meditation or prayer, but something that creates the distance between your, you know, the event that's triggering all of this and your reaction, right. the kind of being in the dumps, the self-talk that's so negative, something that gives you that space. Um, yeah. So reflective practice, super essential, often a new habit for the people I was studying, but something that really, really made a difference. Mm -hmm. So those are the three inner pieces of work. The other two things that these people were doing differently than others were that they were learning how to talk about their value separately from their title or their organization, right? So when you think about it, when, and I use myself as an example, I was the Dean of Students at Columbia Business School. Like, you know, it's the kind of title that makes your mom really proud, <laughs> um, makes my mom really proud to this day. Um, it's not super descriptive about anything I actually do. When you think about it, like, I don't know exactly what that means. I have a sense, but not really. And I found that the more attached I was to that title, the harder it was for me to imagine myself doing something yes. else. Uh, so when people said I was the VP of marketing or I was laid off, I was the director of accounting and I'm looking for a role that would have me be the director of accounting or the VP of marketing, it's very limiting, right? First of all, we know those things mean different things in different organizations, but secondly, and probably more importantly, we become very hooked to the title and we stop really thinking about the ways that we contribute. Mm 
mm-hmm. the ways that we solve problems, the way that we see opportunities and make things happen. And the people who were thriving were really getting into that. They were really going into the work of figuring out what do I actually do every day? What do I actually offer that this company or this organization or this school needs? And how do I demonstrate my track record of having accomplished that? And this, I'm, I'm shocked still when I go into organizations, I work with teams or leaders and sometimes even with very senior leaders and they have a hard time saying what I'm great at. Yes, I was just about to say, Nyla, that I noticed that people who work, especially in the corporate America, in that in that uh, sort of environment, we identify by our titles. And you you know you go into a party or whatever, even if it's a social um, gathering. Hi, I am Lou Blazer. I'm the director. You know, and and you just totally you know introduce yourself by your title at work as if that is who you are. Right. And that actually tells me what you do. And I use, again, I use myself as an example, like, you know, deaning is not a verb. Like, what does that mean? <laughs> I don't even know. But we, I said it a thousand times, you know, at parties, on the blacktop, with my kids' schools, in other corporate or higher ed activities, I would just use my title because I felt like it was shorthand. Right. But it was really just shortchanging me because I could, I had to, when I realized it was time for me to do something else, I had a lot of work to do to figure out what I really loved, what the world really needed, and how I was going to move forward. I had a lot of work to do. Um, and that same was same for the people I study and the people I coach and the people I teach now. It is that this to me is one of the harder things like it should be straightforward. It is hard work. Um, but it has to get done. And the people who thrive do it, right? They spend the time and you go back up to learning about yourself from your network that pays off. Um, you think about all the value of reflecting, that's where you learn, mm-hmm. right? Like the things that I can't wait to do every day, the things I miss doing about that job I no longer have. So not my time, the things I got to do, the people I got to be with, the problems I got to solve, a sense of accomplishment. Um, yeah, still, it's still hard. And then the final thing that people who thrive do is, is conduct experiments, is get out there and create safe, measurable ways of getting new data in the system testing those hypotheses, those assumptions we have. I'm meant to be a classroom teacher. It's the only thing I can ever do, right? And then I would argue for most people that's just not true, right? But we've told ourselves that story so many times we believe it. Um, They're growing their side hustles. They're trying things that make them feel uncomfortable. uh, And they're not committing for life. They're just saying for the next six weeks, I am going to teach that class. That for the next six weeks, I am going to work I take this project working for a larger company than I think I could ever be comfortable in. And I'm going to see how it feels. I'm going to learn from the new data. Um, And I, I know, I know you and I both have a big belief in this way of working. I think, and this is just my, my observation or maybe my theory is that a lot of people who grew up in corporate America, because in corporate America, your bosses inside that company don't don't typically say go ahead and try usually right usually you are supposed to analyze 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 and plan 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 before we go proceed to do something and the expectation is that when we are going to proceed with a project that it's already been analyzed to death and planned to death and so the risk of it not working out is very minimal right Mm, yeah and so and and I think that, and again, this is my theory, is that we, 
folks who grew up in that sort of environment carry carry that with with them in their personal life and so this idea of experimentation is so foreign it's it's almost like yeah. well in order for me to try something out Nyla I have to research and study right. and plan Analysis and paralysis, right yeah. exactly and and make sure I have mitigation right yeah and I think there's a lot of lip service paid to experimentation be bold be innovative but I think there's a lot of reward given to safety um, and then I think that the other thing is you got to layer on that the way your educated family signals all the other things about being right, which are so heavily rewarded. We're used to kind of being measured along lines of, you know, A's are acceptable, B's are acceptable occasionally. But um, we're, you know, we're a performance culture, especially now. Like I think, you know, LinkedIn, even as generous as that makes the world in terms of professional um, growth and opportunity. I mean, if you look at my feed, a lot of it is like, I got promoted. I got this, I got that. And it's like, well, we're all rewarded for just, you know, doing it right. And I think a lot of this experimentation for the people I study came out of desperation, which is like, listen, that's not working. I'm doing everything I'm supposed to do. I'm meeting everyone from my great college and my great business school, my great law school. I did. I did. I remember I had one woman I can remember, I mean, I interviewed her probably seven years ago, but I remember her saying, I had checked every box I was supposed to check. I went to the right schools, I took the right job at the right firm, and I had the right title, and it didn't cover me. It couldn't protect me. And so, and then, you know, she loses her role, and she's back in the marketplace doing all the quote-unquote right things, and it's never a guarantee, especially not in the last recession we experienced. And I think, to your point earlier, if and when the next recession hits, there's so much that's changed with technology since 2008 that it's going to be much more layered, much more complex. And we have to build a tolerance for trying, for failing, falling on our faces and getting back up and trying something else, yeah. learning from mistakes, gathering insights, partnering with people who can help us think it through and moving forward. Um, I think we are it's it's hard to shake this impression that there's guarantees at the end. If I take this GRE course, my score will go up by 200 points. If I put my time in three years as an associate, I will make it to vice president. Like I think there's all those kinds of transactions we expect. And what we learned in 2008 is, sorry, you know, that social contract doesn't quite work anymore. That last bit that you talked about there, Nyla, it's I, personally, I, that is one of the things that I continue to work on because I still am very attached to my desired outcome. And so although I am very open to experimenting and trying things out, and let's see how this works. I get so down when the result isn't what I expect. <laughs> What I yeah, that's only the human experience. I hear you. I hear you. And I know it from my own work, my own life, my own attempt. You know, I know that I, I took a job when I left Columbia. Eventually I took a job in corporate and part to round up my skill set and my experiences. And in my, I told myself I'll stay two years and I ended up staying a lot longer than that. And yes, the work was interesting, but also I knew that I had had an impression that my side hustle was going to be grown to a point that I could make a very clean trade-off. I would just quit one job, move into my side hustle, into my big business, and then it would, I would, my outcome would be that I felt as solid financially as sure of myself and nothing would change. And yeah, so as you can imagine, that's, we're still working through that, <laughs> that fallacy. I have told myself, that's a work in progress. Check back on me in a year. 
I get into this whole, I get so down on myself that I don't achieve the desired results. And then I get upset that I haven't detached from the results. Yeah. So it's just Come like, on, Lou. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. I hear you. Like, have you not learned your lesson yet about this detaching from the results? And I wonder if I go back to the first 15, 18 years of my career pre-2008, I don't think I had to wrestle with that kind of context because things felt much more and it might be I was naive and I probably was but things felt a little more templated like there was be like you spend a couple years doing one thing you're going to get promoted and then you're going to someone's going to see how amazing you are and they're going to give you more responsibility and it felt very linear and I think we are in a time where we know that's not the case anymore. And I think that's why all this work that I did in this research, I'm still talking about it. I'm still teaching about it. I'm still coaching about it because the lessons are relevant now and they're going to be relevant in the next several years. So I hope that we can get the word out that there's things we can do to build your your resilience and you should be doing them when things are good, not just when you're uh, kicked the curb. Uh, what is one book that has made an impact on you and your career? I'm going to say uh, Anne Lamott's book, Bird by Bird, which is actually a book about writing. Um, but there are lessons in that book that I think about all the time. Um, you know, one of the things she talks about is writing. Um, she uses the word shitty first drafts, just kind of being willing, you know, this whole idea of prototyping, experimenting, you got to start with something. And if you're writing and your first draft is terrible when you read it, okay, but don't let that search for perfection stop you from starting. Um, she also talks about, you know, we, we've alluded to the idea of this inner critic, the voice inside us, which is, are you sure you're right? Are you sure you're perfect? Are you sure you're ready? Um, and she has another expression she uses. I encourage you to read the book so you can find out what it is. But that, you know, she calls it a radio station. That's just always telling you that you're not ready yet. So I recommend that book to everyone. I really, I really love it. Um, and whether or not you think of yourself as a writer, I think there's lots of lessons in there. Final question, Nyla, where can we find you online? Sure. Um, I, on Instagram, I'm at Dr. Nyla Bari and online I'm at nylabari.com. And my name is spelled N-A-Y-L-A-B-A-H-R-I. And I would love to see you guys there. In fact, on my website, I have a free worksheet that allows you to start digging into claiming your value, that behavior that we talked about being so difficult. Um, so it allows you to start thinking about some of the highlights from your career and gives you some guidance to talking about the things that you're really proud of. Perfect. Well, I'm going to put all the links on the show notes for this episode. Nyla, this has been fantastic. I could talk to you for hours. <laughs> well, let's do it another time then. Thank you. All right. Thanks, Lou. Talk to you soon. I hope that you found this episode useful for the show notes, all the links and the notes from my conversation with Dr. Nyla Bari. Head on over to secondbreaks.com forward slash podcasts. And while you're there, don't forget to sign up for the Second Breaks newsletter for weekly curated resources, tips and trends to guide your career move. Next week, we get on the final leg of the Side Hustle series. My guest is lawyer Autumn Witt Boyd, and we got to talking about all the things, hashtag, all the things that you need to consider from a legal perspective if you're thinking about starting a freelancing career or a side project. Definitely a cannot miss episode. So if you haven't yet, now is a good time to subscribe to the podcast via whatever app it is that you're using right now to listen to this episode Or if you happen to be listening to this on the website, 
You're going to find options for podcast apps right there as well, right below the audio player. Lastly, if you're listening to this podcast and find it useful, I would so appreciate it if you would share and tell your friends about it. Okie dokie. I will be back next week with Autumn with Boyd. Until then, keep on making your debt, my friend. All the very best for 2020. Cool be.